morning, thank you. One applause in the room. That's all we get. Hey, here's the deal. Uh, Trunk or Treat has been uh, wildly successful. We didn't get a chance to do it last year because we didn't get a chance to do a lot of things last year. Uh, but two years ago, in the rain, we had over 2,000 people show up uh, for Trunk or Treat. So we assume with good weather, that number would probably even double. Um, we are hoping to have 50 cars. At the moment, we have 21 cars. The idea is that you bring your car, you decorate it a little bit, you open your trunk, and you hand out candy. If uh, you need us to supply you with candy, we can do that. But if you bring candy, that's great. Uh, so in this service, I need 29 cars to go back there and sign up, and uh, let's fill the parking lot and bless the neighborhood. The kids come out in groves. Uh, lots and lots of just the kids from the community. So it's just a great chance for us to put our best foot forward and uh, bless the kids in the neighborhood. Can we do it? Good energy. All right. Hey, today is what we call party with the pastor. Woo woo. Yeah, that was good. I like that. Uh, that happens uh, on the patio, Meg and Doug's patio. Uh, not Doug's patio, Kevin. Trying to get me in trouble. Anyway, uh, so that happens at 5.30 today. If you are new or newer around Grace or just trying to get reconnected uh, and you haven't been to party with the pastor, love for you to come. Uh, but we just need to know because we're going to feed you. So just stop at the information counter. Let them know that you're coming. Want to encourage you to take part in the D group experience that Meg talked about in the video. Um, I would encourage you to come as your small group, uh, whether your small group is gender specific or a mixed group. If it's a mixed group, we'll divide you out because the D groups are done in the gender specific. But just so you get to know the format, if you're leading within a ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, get great chance for you to get some people there. Uh, this is just a wonderful uh, discipleship tool that uh, Rock Bottomly gave to us when he was here on staff for a while, and it just works really well. So we'd love for you to experience. I'm going to be there. I'm just going to walk everybody through a D group experience. You don't have to sign up. You just got to show up, but we'd love for you to have you there. We're in week six of this series that we've called Relationship Matters. Uh, I don't know if you know. Hopefully by now you've heard me say it, but relationship really does matter. Your relationship with God is going to affect everything about you, your physical health, your emotional health, your relationship with other people affects your physical, spiritual, emotional well-being. I say it all the time, but you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. And so relationship really does matter. So we need community around us. We need people to help us walk out this thing called faith. We've talked about a lot, but the one theme that comes through this entire series that I want everybody to hold on to is the four keys to a healthy relationship. Humility, Right? Remember we talked about this? Honor, the idea of seeing value in people. Encouragement, the idea of seeing people doing the right things and encouraging them in that. And then prayer. If you go back and you read Philippians, you're going to see these threads over and over and over. Uh, we've talked a lot about honor. Last week, we talked about the importance of the power of particularization. You remember that? And we used that phrase that... Uh, uh, is written in Philippians when he speaks of Timothy, he says, I have no one like you. My encouragement was uh, speak that over one another. Speak that over your kids. Speak that over your spouse. Uh, speak that over your classmates. But those very words, I have no one like you. And then explain it. I heard somebody in the lobby said they said that over their uh, two-year-old or three-year-old and started to cry because she said no one likes you. 
So be careful how you say it. If they're really young, you might want to rework the phrase from no one likes you, crush his little spirit. But I have no one like you is a great way for us to encourage, to show value in one another and to honor one another. If we want to build a culture of honor here at Grace, and we do, then the idea is that we begin to see value in everyone. We see each person as a work of art that God has created to do a good work in advance. And so we call that out and call that into one another. This week, we're going to see uh, the necessity of humility. Humility is really the theme for this week. So grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. While you're looking, I want to remind you or encourage you to do something. If you haven't done this already, or even if you have done this since the series started, I just want to encourage you to do it again. Sit down this week and read Philippians in one sitting from start to finish. If you are an average reader, that will take you about 15 minutes. If you're a slow reader like me, it might take you 20 minutes, but it's a pretty short four-chapter letter. You can read it quickly. Sit down and read it from, from front to back all the way through, and it will help you to kind of put all of these sermons into context. Sometimes we pull little parts out and we teach through it, and we don't see the broader picture of the letter. So read through the whole letter. You'll begin to see, as you're reading, pay attention to humility, pay attention to honor, pay attention to the encouragement, pay attention to how Paul prays for the people. You'll see all four of those uh, healthy elements of a relationship throughout the letter. So read through it this week. It would be good for you. All right, if you want to stand with me, we're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Verse 1, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the spirit of God in the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason or confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, I thank you for Philippians. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the work that you have been doing throughout the the services. There's just so many good things going on in the nine o'clock service. I thank you for just the way you've used the worship set to uh, just get us ready for this message. Lord, my prayer early this morning was that uh, it would be less of me and more of you. I pray that anything I say that's not of your spirit would just fall away and the things that you have brought to mind that are of your spirit would just land in fertile soil. Pray that we would hear a word from the living God today. 
that we would leave this room, that we would leave this broadcast different than we came. Lord, I just pray for those who are hurting. I'm just very aware this morning uh, just of all the different struggles uh, that I can just think of right now. Physical health and mental health and just spiritual journeys and people who are really just going through some really hard times. It seems like in a lot of ways there's more of that in our body than there's ever been. And so I pray for my friends. I pray for uh, those who are watching those who are in this room who are just in a season of struggle. I pray that this message would encourage them, but I pray that they would just lean into you, that you would do immeasurably more than they can ask, think, or imagine. I pray that healing would roll out from this place. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So some of you may have already asked yourself as we read through this, I said it was about humility, but not once does Paul say anything about humility directly. But I can tell you this passage has everything to do with humility. And if I do my job right today, you will see that by the time I finish this sermon, that humility is a critical element to a healthy relationship with God. Part of the challenge we have in understanding this particular passage is the context is kind of lost on us. I've been in the church and around the church for most of my my life, and I can say with assurance that I have never heard a heated argument in the church about circumcision. I have never seen a church split over the topic of circumcision. I've seen some silly church splits, but that's never been the, the, the core issue that we deal with. It's not something that we really think about much at all. But this was a huge hurdle for the early church. This was, was a major stumbling block as the church was getting started. Many, now remember the context, many devout Jews have come to faith in Jesus. We see that in the early chapters of Acts. Many Jewish people who were practicing the Jewish customs and practicing the laws are coming to faith in Jesus. And now they are trying to figure out how do we live this life of faith differently now that we know Jesus. And some of those Jewish people, just some of them, Felt like it was important. You, yes, you say yes to Jesus, but you still need to follow the law as described in the Old Testament, right? And they were so adamant about this that they began to, if you will, bring about missionaries that they would send out into the Gentile world, these, these Gentile places where churches were being formed, and these Judaizers, as they would call, would go and they would teach, yes, you need Jesus, but you need Jesus and you need to continue to follow the law. Specifically, you still need to be circumcised. And this became a huge problem in the early church. Matter of fact, we see it in Galatians, we see it in Corinthians, we see it in Philippians, and Paul is sort of calling out these Judaizers, and he's doing it in a, in a graphic sort of way. I want you to see this in Galatians so you can see that this isn't just a problem in Philippi. You don't have to turn there, but this is Galatians 3, 1 through 6. Paul writes and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by having hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, it was in vain. 
Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I love the graphicness of this passage. Who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians, you have suffered in vain. And indeed, they really did suffer physical pain, right? There's, there's something physically painful about circumcision. He's saying, you did it, but you did it all in vain. It was pointless. Now, I want you to see something because I think it's easy for us to be hypercritical of the early church and even of the Jewish people. But to be fair... They were trying to live by what they saw was right. They were trying to live by the Old Testament law. And I want you to see this because it is a little bit confusing. Go all the way back to Genesis 17. This is the the covenant with Abraham that establishes the Jews as God's chosen people. And if you want to go back later and read through that chapter and read through the covenant, but near the end of that covenant... He makes it very clear. He says, every male in every household must be circumcised. And then listen to these words. He says, any uncircumcised male, that's pretty all-inclusive, right? Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That seems pretty straightforward. Right, One can understand how these Jewish believers could be a little bit confused. And I'm just showing you this to show you that, that sometimes we're just a little harsh in our judgment of the early church and their struggles to figure out this new covenant that we're under. But Paul makes it clear in this particular passage in Philippians, look at verse 3, says, For we are the circumcised. Right, We are the circumcised, who by the spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again on the third day to free us from the law. And now the people in the early church are trying to figure out, what does that mean? How do we live this life of faith? What do we do with the Old Testament covenant? I love this passage in verse 3 when when Paul is talking. I love all of the, the descriptors in here. He says, we are not cut off. We are accepted. And we worship God by the Spirit, not by the flesh. We glory, or the word could be rejoice in Christ Jesus. And we have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in ourselves, no confidence in the works of the law. Paul uses this situation to warn them of a common pitfall. It's a warning that's not just found in Philippians, but almost every single letter that Paul writes goes to this this same warning that whenever you put confidence in the flesh, or put confidence in yourself, or can put confidence in something that you're going to do, whenever you put confidence in the flesh, you are on shaky ground. Anytime you are self-reliant, you're in danger. Anytime you think you can earn your way into favor with God, you're in deep trouble. Listen, and I want you to hear this clearly, and this is just this is something for you to just need to hold on to. Beware Beware of any belief, any practice, any teaching that dilutes the power of the cross. 
when you listen to televangelists, when you listen to podcasts, when you listen to other preachers, when you listen to other teachers, when you study other faith groups, beware of anything that dilutes the power of the cross. Anytime we try to add something to the cross, what we're saying is the work that Jesus did on the cross was good. It just wasn't quite good enough. Yeah, we need Jesus, but we need a little church too. We need Jesus, but you still got to live a good life. We need Jesus and. Jesus and is shaky, shaky ground. There's a thing called modalism. It's the idea of, of, of bringing together two or more belief systems, right? And, and it's been a stumbling block in the church throughout, throughout human history, actually. Even in the Old Testament, we see this combining of, of faiths, combining of, of different belief systems, right? It was a problem then, and it's still a problem now. But let me say it again. Anytime we add to the gospel, we are in essence saying the cross is not good enough, it's Jesus and good works. It's Jesus and baptism. It's Jesus and communion. It's Jesus and generosity, right? It, there's, there's all of the ways that we add to the gospel. Paul is saying circumcision is not going to do anything for you. He's telling him you can't do anything to earn God's favor. You can't do anything to make God love you more. And then he says, put no confidence in the flesh. I love the fact that he says, look, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. He actually says, if you think you have reason for confidence, I got more. It's kind of braggadocious, right? He says, you think you're a good Jew? I I'm a better one, right? He talks about his lineage. He talks about his heritage. He talks about a tribe of Benjamin. He talks about being a Pharisee. He talks about being a zealot and persecuting the early church. He even says, I've kept the law completely. Right, he's basically saying, you don't get to be a better Jew than I was. If anybody has reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. But then he says, but I count all that as rubbish. I don't know what your translation says, but the Greek word there is actually human waste. He's being very graphic. I count it all as dung. Something that you would never go back to. Something that you wouldn't want to, to pick up. Something that you wouldn't want to even look at. I count it all as rubbish. In essence, what he's saying, the light that I thought that I had turned out to be darkness. All of your efforts to, to earn God's acceptance, he's saying, is nothing but dung. Anything that competes with Christ is lostness. And it needs to be repented of and it needs to be released. So what's the solution? What's the solution to this problem? And he says it right at the very beginning of chapter three. He says what he says, rejoice in the Lord. That word rejoice is the same word that's often translated glory. Rejoice in the Lord, glory in the Lord. And here's what that glory means. It means to place all of your confidence in someone or something. Put all of your confidence in Jesus, not in your religious activities. Put all of your confidence in Jesus, not in your pedigree, not in your associations. Put all of your confidence in Jesus, not in your personal accomplishments. Now here's where it gets a little bit confusing. We know 
from the story of Acts, we know from, from Paul's letter that Paul was still a practicing Jew, that he still went to the temple, that he still participated in the sacrificial system. As a matter of fact, when you get laid into Acts, we see Paul cutting his hair and, and making a sacrifice, some kind of Nazarite vow that he participates in. And this is, this is after the fact. So does that make Paul a hypocrite? Right? He's still participating in the Jewish system, but he's saying it's, it's all waste. It's all rubbish. And, and what about us? Like we push this thing called the six essentials. You know, remember the six essentials are going to come up on the screen. We say that if you really want to grow in your faith with God, if you want to continually grow, whether you're a new believer or an old believer that you need to gather, something happens in this room that can't be replicated online or anywhere else. You need to come together. You need to be together. Something happens when we gather that you need to connect. You cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. You need to serve because God has created you to do a good work. He created it in advance for you to do. People of generosity that are open-handed with all that God gives us, time, talent, treasures, people of influence willing to share our faith with others with hearts of devotion, hearts that are fully devoted to God. Are we hypocrites when we talk about this? But here's the deal. None of this will save you, right? None of this will get you into heaven. None of this will earn you favor with God. None of this will make God love you more. It all comes down to your, your motivation, the purpose behind the activity. None of these are going to save you. And when you think they will, when that is how you're using them, Paul is saying, then these very things that you do become rubbish. They become dung. Here's the reality. If you want to grow up you are going to have to show up, right? If you want to grow in your walk with God, it doesn't just happen. As my friend Bryce always called it, you don't just get the shazam. You don't say, yes, Jesus, boom, you're mature. It just doesn't work that way. You got to show up. You got to participate. The scriptures say you have to work out your salvation. What is it saying there? You have to live into who you are as a new creation of Christ. You don't work for it. You work it out. You become who God wants you to become by growing up in Christ. Gathering on Sunday morning is not the end. It's a means to an end. And the end is more of Jesus, right? Something happens when we worship together, when we sing in, in unity. Songs about giving our lives to Jesus and Jesus being the anchor of our soul. Something happens in corporate worship. Something happens when we sit under the teaching and, and we're all learning together. Connecting with others, you know, living in, in community that we push so hard is the only place you can really live out the one another commands of scripture, but they're not, it's not gonna save you, right? It's gonna help you to grow, but it doesn't save you. The only thing that saves you is faith, in Jesus, faith alone, in Christ alone. So we have a baptism service next week, as a matter of fact, the 24th. Um, here's what this passage is saying. If you decide to get baptized so that you'll be saved, then baptism becomes rubbish. So why get baptized? Well, we get baptized because you're invited to do it. So, so, so you are saved through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. 
not by works so that no one can boast. And baptism is an outward expression of this inward transaction that's already taking place. It's an opportunity for you to declare to the body at large, I am going to walk faithfully with Jesus from this day forward. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. And if you've said yes to Jesus, you're saved and he is inviting you to participate in baptism. Now here's what I believe. Something supernatural happens when you get in the tank. I don't understand it. I guess that's why they call it supernatural, right? But something happens, but it doesn't save anyone. I know I'm being repetitive, but I think it's important for us to get this. The minute you believe that communion, the Lord's table is going to save you, then communion itself becomes rubbish. That's what Paul's saying. The very act of doing it and and doing it with the wrong understanding and thinking that this is something that's going to save you taints it because it adds to the gospel. It says, yeah, it was great. Jesus went to the cross, but, but I need the cross and I need communion. Do you see what happens there? It becomes blasphemy. It becomes heresy. So why do we do it? Because Jesus invites us to He says, whenever you're together, take the cup and remember. What are we to remember? We're to remember the cross. We're to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made to make us one with God. We're to remember that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross, to to be risen on the third day so that we can be in community with him. Without simple reminders, we forget essential truths. So we take communion as a way of remembering. Now here's the deal. I believe something supernatural happens when we take communion together. I don't really understand it, but I believe when we do it with our hearts in the right spot, something supernatural takes place. We practice the six essentials as a way of growing in our faith. It's not an act of salvation at all. I started this morning by saying this passage is all about humility, and, and it is. Humility is the recognition that you are incapable of saving yourself. You are incapable of adding anything to the cross. I don't know if you know this, but your very life is a gift from God. The fact that you can take a breath today is a gift from God. Your ability to work, your ability to be part of a family, your ability to participate in Sunday morning, it's all a gift from God. This passage this morning, it's primarily about salvation by faith. That's what Paul is writing about. But the application goes way beyond just salvation. As soon as you think you can accomplish anything on your own, you're in dangerous ground. Right, as soon as you think you have the ability to to do good things without God, you are in a dangerous place. There's an old hymn that we used to sing when I was growing up. It said, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So the question is, where is your confidence? What do you really trust in? Where do you go when things really get tough? Where do you go for comfort? As this week unfolded, I was writing the sermon. I began to process it with some coworkers here and with some good friends. 
And I began to pray and ask God, like, where am I placing my confidence in the flesh? Where am I adding to the gospel? I never want to teach something that I'm not willing to apply in my own life. And as I prayed and reflected, God began to show me just how self-reliant I really am. I think to myself, and I respond often in this way, I just need to work harder. I just need to set my alarm a little bit earlier. I just need to get into the church a little bit sooner. I need to do more. I need to help grow the church. I need to, I need to do, I need to do, I need to do so that things will happen here at Grace. I need to help people to find freedom. I need to, that, that could all sound really noble, right? Except for that first word, I, gets me in a lot of trouble. I want you to hear the words of King Solomon. If you don't remember King Solomon, he was David's son, uh, probably the most successful of kings. I guess you could argue David was successful his own way, but when it came to expanding the kingdom of Israel, Solomon, it never was larger than under Solomon's reign. It never was more successful in, in terms of a, a kingdom, not in terms of the kingdom of God, but the physical uh, area. So Solomon is said to be the richest man of all time, probably was if you were to transfer what dollars were worth then compared to now and, and all of that. Solomon was, was uber wealthy, uber successful in all the ways that you, we would kind of define success, um, non-spiritually speaking. And uh, he learned some lessons the hard way. This is Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. King Solomon writes this, and a lot of you know this verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, I grew up thinking this passage was about the church. I don't know why. I, I don't know that anybody ever taught me that. I just, I've quoted it often. Even when we pray at 930 in the morning, I often quote this passage as well. If the Lord doesn't build the house, we labor in vain. Lord, help us not to labor in vain. Now, that's not a wrong application, but this is not about the church. I mean, we can apply it to the church, but this is about everyday life. Right? Unless the Lord builds your family, you labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds your business, you labor in vain, right? It's all, unless the Lord is watching over the city, the watchman who stays up all night labors in vain. I love what he says here in verse two. It's in vain that you get up early and you go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, right? But that's what I do. Things aren't going well. There's something that needs to be done. I set my alarm a little bit earlier, right? I, I get, get after it a little bit sooner. I do more. Now, don't misconstrue what I'm teaching this morning, what this passage is teaching. It's not teaching that hard work is a bad thing. Hard work is a good thing. But when your hard work lacks prayer and lacks, lacks inviting God into the very presence of whatever you're doing, then you're doing it in your own power. You're doing it in your, in your own, and you labor in vain. The passage is saying when you do that, it's all dumb. Here's the reality. Your prayer life and your devotional life reveals your understanding of just how dependent you are 
on Christ. If you roll out of bed and you get busy doing before you even invite God into the day, then you believe that you are your own provider. Then you believe that you can do this on your own. You are self-reliant. I am often way too self-reliant. Your generosity, your willingness to tithe at a biblical level, it reveals your understanding of how dependent you are on Christ. God says, do you trust me? Are you willing to give from the first fruits? Not from your leftovers. Are you willing to give from the first fruits? As a way of saying, I trust you and I trust that you're my provider. And when you say, no, I'm not willing to do that, what are you saying? I am my own provider, right? I am the one responsible for my financial health and I need to do what I need to do. And if there's any leftover, God, we'll talk about it. Your willingness to take a Sabbath. Your willingness to actually rest reveals your understanding of how dependent you are on God. That's exactly what Solomon is writing about. Right? As as he puts it, when you get up early and you go to bed late and you strive in, in anxious toil to make things happen on your own. I talk to people all the time. They said, I I can't take a Sabbath. That, that business that I'm competing with, they're going to get ahead of me. Right? That, that guy that I'm competing with in the sales force in my company, he's going to get ahead of me. I can't rest. I can't take a Sabbath. Do you know, do you know how much work I have to do this week? What, what are you saying? I don't trust in God as my provider. And I can do this. You become self-reliant. Here's the deal. Humility drives us to prayer. When we recognize that we can't do it on our own, we invite God into the entire process. We, get, we invite him into how we father. We invite him into how we are as spouses. We invite him into how we are as classmates. We invite him into every aspect of our lives. When we believe we're our own providers, we make terrible choices, right? And most often the wheels fall off. We turn to sin for comfort. We get into relationships that we never should have gotten into. We become workaholics. We become manipulative in our relationships. We become stressed. We become anxious. Because it's not the way we were called to live. The fact is, whether you know it or not, you are utterly dependent on God to show up. I love James The book of James is incredible. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. I don't want God as my opposition. That's not a good formula for success. Same chapter, he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. How do you humble yourself? It starts by recognizing you are dependent on God for everything good in your life. And inviting God into that process. Amen. The scriptures say, in all of your ways, not in some of your ways, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Let's pray. But I pray that you would help us to take hold of what you have for us in this book of Philippians. I pray that you would 
Help us to be humble, that we would be people who would humble ourselves before you, that we would truly understand how dependent we are on you, that it's not our education, it's not our intelligence, it's not our, our, our work-isms, it's, not our, it's, it's none of that, that it's you. That we still would show up, that we would be people that honor you by the way we work hard, but, but that we would work hard for the kingdom, that we'd work hard with you front and center. Lord, I pray that you would show us anywhere where we've added to the gospel in our own insidious way. Yeah, it's Jesus, but I just gotta live better too. It's Jesus and help us to see the faulty thinking. Lord, I just lift up this body to you. Again, I'm just very mindful today of just the people who are really just in a tough place. I got some tough mental health stuff that we're dealing with and some physical ailments that are just seem so catastrophic. And Lord, I just invite you into those situations and ask that you would do immeasurably more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power of the Spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you need prayer, we have some people that would love to meet with you down here and pray over you. If you are online, there should be a number that pops up on your screen right about now. You can call that number and we have some people who could meet with you uh, online in the private prayer appointment as well. God bless you. See you next week as we continue Philippians.